0: Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats.
1: Welcome to Fireside Chats. Leave our world a better place. My name is Kasha. Today I'm chatting to NBON conservation manager Les Carlyle to find out more about why conservation needs to include care of the people. Thank you for joining us once again, Les.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure, Cassie.
1: Always a pleasure to chat to you. Fantastic to hear that. Les, um, let's just jump right into the topic. Um, Most people think that conservation is just about wildlife. And yet, very often I've heard you say that ultimately conservation is about people. Can you explain that to us, please?
0: Oh, sure, Cash. that's very easy. Firstly, it was Nelson Mandela who said that ultimately conservation is about people. And he said that uh, at an hotel parks board function back in the in the 1990s. Um, and the reason why he said that is is the reason why and beyond has always had care of the land, care of the wildlife, and most importantly, care of the people, is that when you look at all of the potential impacts that conservation faces, if you look at all the potential threats or negative impacts, all of them, are driven by people. There are very few internal management mistakes that you can make that can affect conservation as badly as people can affect conservation. So, Mm -hmm. ultimately, as Mandela said, conservation is about people. And if we don't get the people around the parks to see the relevance of the parks and to perceive a benefit from those parks, then the parks will have absolutely no future. So, it's really important in a developing world context Mm-hmm. to make sure that you have this integrated approach to conservation, which includes the social dynamic around the parks, because that's going to be where the future of conservation is played out, is in that social dynamic.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the way that you explain it, it sounds really, really simple and almost obvious now. Um, but when And Beyond first began at Pinder Private Game Reserve, um, that conservation model that you've just spoken about that links communities, people, and conservation wasn't very widely accepted. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced getting buy-in to that model, both from the communities that surround the reserve and from your own peers in the safari industry?
0: That's a really uh, pertinent question. If you if you go back 30 years, you've got to put it in context. Um I think it was 1992 that the World Parks Congress in Rio coined the phrase ecotourism. So we were two years before the word ecotourism had even started being used widely. So, so dealing with wildlife, land, and people as an integrated development model was, was really, really groundbreaking and completely strange to the formal conservation fraternity. Biodiversity was gaining impetus, and within the Natal Parks Board, who were the local conservation authority that we were dealing with, they were really starting to grapple with the the social implications of biodiversity management, which includes um, the people outside of the park. So they just started recognizing that, but they hadn't started publicly saying anything about that, to the point where we were considered to be irresponsible in the extreme, were the words they Mm -hmm. used. Because we were dealing with these people outside of the parks who posed the threat to the parks in their view. Yes. We saw it the other way around, and, and we saw the communities outside of the park as being major supporters to make sure that our parks had a future.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that, That's quite a different way of looking at it. Um, and I think also, you know, in the, in the broader context, um, you spoke about... Bringing benefits to the, about the parks bringing the benefits to the communities themselves. Um, I think very much the older model um, sort of stipulated that safari lodges benefited communities through employment. And the end beyond model said that that is no longer enough. There have to be other benefits. Can you explain that to us a little bit more? How, how can communities and conservation work together? How does one benefit the other?
0: I think it goes back to the very fundamentals of of, uh, making a system work. So when you start looking at biodiversity and conservation at a system level, where you're looking at the catchment of the rivers rather than the individual river, and you're looking at the ecosystem boundaries, which include the people that are part of that system, then you have to start seeing things differently. And you've got to understand, back in 1990, when we started engaging with the communities, They were very suspicious of of anybody coming in to engage with them, particularly people with beards and in khaki uniforms, because that Mm -hmm. traditionally was the conservation authorities, and Mm -hmm. they traditionally would only come into the communities if they wanted to arrest the poacher or follow up on a poaching incident. So the relationship wasn't very positive between the conservation authorities and the local communities back in those days. Mm -hmm. So we first had to overcome that suspicion, and we had to build a relationship based on trust. So all of this um, biodiversity management or integrated approach to conservation or inclusive uh, conservation management was about trying to make sure that we had a relationship with the communities that would allow us to engage on issues that we thought were important and most importantly that would allow them to have a voice so that we could address their concerns because Unfortunately, in all of these things, it has to be a mutually beneficial relationship for it to be sustainable. Yes. And that was where we struggled the most in the early days, was getting people to understand that unless we addressed the needs of the communities, we weren't going to be able to address our own needs. Mm-hmm. And, and it was that mind shift that was required within conservation circles. So when we stood up and claimed care of the land, care of the wildlife, and care of the people, was the way to go, we got a lot of resistance mm-hmm. and a lot of flack from a lot of different people at public forums and many places, because it was so difficult to engage with the communities in the early days. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, there's no other way.
1: Yes. So what what were some of those difficulties in terms of, of engaging with the communities? Obviously, there was trust that needed to be built up, and that was a process that took time. How did you go about gaining that trust and building that relationship?
0: Probably the best uh, illustration of that was we had a, we had a, a staff member who, who guided us on our relationship with the communities and who was one of the founders of the relationship building that the Africa Foundation today sees as a cornerstone of the relationship between communities and conservation. And his name was Walter Zulu. And Baba Zulu was uh, of royal lineage. And he took me into the communities to meet the local chiefs And uh, after we'd met them all, that was the start, then you'd go back a week later and you'd go and meet them and go through all the pleasantries, and then you would get to whatever you wanted to discuss with them, and you'd have a debate about employment of their people from their communities, etc. We'd had a debate about putting up a fence between Nobogazi and Pinda, and we'd agreed that we need a fence because that'll stop the lions from killing the goats and the cattle. And When I had this discussion with the chief, the chief said, uh, I asked him what will happen when we bring lions into the reserve, how will it impact you, and the chief said, no, it won't impact us at all, the only thing that will change is the herd boys won't be able to sleep under the trees like they do now. When (laughs) I was young, there were lions here, we had to be awake to keep the lions away from the cattle. So he had a very simple view of the potential impact of lions neighbouring his community. Yes. And we had a... different response from the from the commercial cattle farmers who were terrified that the lions were going to eat their kids and destroy their families and eat their homes and I mean they really saw mm-hmm. this massive threat of lions was going to destroy their lives a completely different concern from the rural communities who lived mm-hmm. in mud huts who didn't even have doors in their homes they weren't concerned about personal safety and family safety at all they were concerned about their livestock that may or may not have mm-hmm. been eaten by the cattle by the lions. So an interesting difference between the local community's perception of the reintroduction of lions and the commercial cattle farmers' perception of the reintroduction of lions. Both of them gave our support in the end, and both of them, through regular meetings and building the relationships, ended up becoming fairly firm supporters of the the Ambion model at local level. And that was one of the reasons why we were able to so confidently produce it as a model at international level when we started taking the model internationally
1: mm. okay tell us a little bit about that that whole process of taking the model inter- internationally you started it at pinda in South Africa and then you were able to replicate it um, in other places in Africa um, what was that pro- process how did you replicate it exactly? Did you have to tweak it a little bit for local for local conditions? How exactly did, did that work?
0: I think that's one of the most remarkable things about uh, CC Africa model as it was in those days, the Ambion model today, is that it's a group of people who all buy into the same vision. So it's never one individual. I wasn't responsible for doing anything. I was part of a team that actually took this thing to other continents And it did have to be tailored to suit the local conditions, because the land ownership, the land tenure, um, the local conditions are different in all of these conservation Mm -hmm. areas. As I've always said, conservation is complicated, and we have to have locally crafted solutions for local problems. So as long as you keep all of the elements of the model in place, as long as you have something of each of the elements um, to operate on locally, the model will work. You might have more focus on community development, or more focus on land requirements, or more focus on wildlife in a specific area. But as long as you've got the other two to support that particular focus area, you've got a model that's going to be able to work. So in our minds, the three elements are important at how much of each of the elements are uh, available in, in the local conditions, is not as important as long as you have Mm -hmm. a focus on all three and as long as you're trying to make sure that each of those three legs are in place then you're going to have a stable base on which to build your model so when we moved into india we moved in with partners there the taj hotel group they had identified um they already had access to one or two properties that they had identified so we were able to look at how we could engage with those rural communities around the indian parks and how we could engage with the conservation authorities inside the parks to see if there was anything, any learnings that could be brought from our African model in, into the Indian uh, conservation development space. Um, and interestingly enough, in all three of the spheres, uh, we were able to, um, to provide support um, and learnings from the African model, and in fact, we were able to take some things back to Africa. If you look at the way And Beyond serves uh, uh, our drinks at all of our drink stops now. Mm-hmm. One of the ways we carry the food is in the little Indian uh, stainless steel stack containers that, that we keep all of our snacks in. Yes. Those were used as uh, food carriers in India um, and a really interesting um, way of carrying your, your lunchbox uh, to work. Yes. Um, so, learnings both ways from a practical tourism implication point of view, but also from a model point of view and engaging with the different tribes in India are all different, and they all have different approaches to wildlife. Some of them eat wildlife, some of them revere and worship wildlife, so obviously your approach has to be different if you have that diversity of approach to wildlife mm-hmm. from the communities.
1: Yes. So, it, it really is extremely important to get that buy-in from the communities. Um, and I think maybe one where one of the strength of, of the and beyond model comes in is how involved the communities themselves become. Um, can you give us an, an idea of what proportion of the workforce at each and beyond lodge comes from the surrounding communities that live directly around the lodge?
0: Yeah, it varies from from country to country and from lodge to lodge, but... Um, in, in Pinda's case, when we started the development, um, we employed all the staff from the local communities outside of the uh, the reserve. We brought in um, managers and trainers who would train the staff. So we'd started employing staff while we were building the lodge, and they were trained in, in one of the old um, reeded camps that existed on one of the properties uh, that we'd bought. So we did all the training of the housekeepers and the chefs and the butlers, They were trained while serving staff members and management while we were busy building the lodge. So when the lodge opened, they'd already been through three or four months of training, and they could then step right into being able to serve guests. Um, And remember, many of these people had never had a job before. So the trust between the communities and and beyond was a key component of of the relationship. And I'll never forget one of my early... uh, biggest lessons in trust was we were building a a community had identified a school as being a requirement up in Ngobugazi, Mm -hmm. and Walter Zulu and I met with the governing body and the teachers, and we sat down to talk about the school, and um, Walter said to them, so what are you guys going to bring to the party? If we're going to provide the building materials, what are you going to bring? And the headmaster of the school said, we'll provide the water. Yes, And I looked at Walter anyway. I that's fine. I know that there's a very water-poor area. They had very limited water in the area. And it was one of their requests for, for support was for us to help them provide better water reticulation. So I was concerned that they'd picked their weakness mm-hmm. as part of their contribution to building a classroom. Mm. Anyway, it turns out I was very concerned. And I kept saying to Walter that I want to get a tractor to bring a bowser of water so that we're not embarrassed... On the day when we were going to lay the foundations, we had all the sand and stone and the builders had dug the foundations open and we were going to have an event to pour the foundation. And I knew they didn't have water. And I kept trying to provide water by organizing my tractor to be on standby. And Walter said, you have to trust the community. They've told you they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Just trust them. And I struggled with that concept because I didn't want to embarrass them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we arrived on the day to pour the Uh, concrete, and there were all the dignitaries sitting under the uh, shade of the tree, and the foundations were dug, and the cement was mixed with stone and sand, and there was no water, and I was sitting there saying, yep, you see, and -hmm. then the school kids started singing, and they came filing in from under a tree further down, and all of them were carrying a litre of water, and they each poured Mm -hmm. a litre of water into the concrete mix, and slowly the concrete Mm -hmm. was mixed by water carried by the kids to Mm -hmm. pour the concrete their classroom, and that was such a lesson for me in being able to trust the communities. I never believed they would ever get the water ready to be able to build their own classroom, but once they committed to it, they made a plan and they did. And that's what we have to learn to do: is trust the communities to deliver their side of the development, and then your relationship builds, and it's based on something firm, which is trust.
1: So it really is about that that relationship and that commitment and also having identifying the right projects together with the communities and identifying the projects that they're committed to and and willing to to work together with with us on, isn't it?
0: Yes, I think I mean we don't presume to know what their needs are. All of mm. our failed projects in the communities have been where I've seen what the need is in the community and I've raised the money and I've delivered it and and the only effort being put in in the community side has been what I've done. And I couldn't understand why the project failed because there's a definite and observable and noticeable need for what I've done. But it's what I think they need rather than asking them what they need. Mm -hmm. So we very quickly in the early days of the relationship with the communities. Understood that we had to do needs analysis in the communities and identify what their needs were and then keep priority prioritizing with them What their needs were as their needs change and as we delivered on one need We would prioritize the ones below that to see if they were still in the right order So it's about helping the communities develop themselves And that's where the whole concept in the Africa Foundation comes from of working with much easier to give somebody something than it is to help them get something that they want themselves.
1: Absolutely. Um, just to get back to the idea of of how many community members are involved at, at each lodge, and in terms of, of employment there, do you find that involving the communities and actually giving them giving them a stake in the success of of the um, of the conservation or of the lodge itself has that changed the attitude of the rest of the community towards conservation in general or towards the game reserves as a whole?
0: Again that uh, varies from community to community but mm. certainly it, it does have an impact the, the more people you employ out of the out of the local community the more small businesses you create that are operating in the rural community where the, where the supplier or the um, the purchaser is the lodge itself. The more the benefits from conservation flow into communities, the more relevant the conservation area is to the local economy of the local communities. The more people that are employed out of that community, that's the starting point. But then you've got to add to that, and you've got to make sure that you your local transport supplier is out of the communities, if you can be. Your vegetable suppliers. You've got to try and find innovative purchases that you could get from somebody else, but if you can get them from the local community, they're not only providing you with what you need, but they're also providing you with a blanket of security around the reserve that mm-hmm. becomes your first light of defense when the chips are down, and I mean, that's the kind of situation that, that we're looking at now, is that as, as things change and all this revenue starts disappearing out of these rural communities, that perception and that um, security that the communities provide to the conservation areas starts becoming um, less and less
1: effective because mm-hmm. the direct benefits and the perception of benefits get less and less as time goes on okay. Well obviously that that is a huge concern with the situation at the moment um, in terms of COVID-19 and the huge impact that it's going to have on rural communities in Africa, not only in terms of, of health itself, but specifically in terms of jobs and income. Um, do you have any insights on how you feel that this might affect human-wildlife conflict and conservation in those areas?
0: Yeah, I think there's no doubt that it's going to have an impact. Um, the longer that we go without employment in the parks and without benefits flowing out of the parks, the more that perception of value within the parks starts changing and you must remember that uh, 50 or 100 years ago before these parks were established the parks were effectively the larder that provided food for the communities so as we regress in our in the development and as we have less and less finances flowing out of these parks they start becoming less and less about benefiting the communities from a uh, from an employment uh, point of view because there's no money coming out of the parks and less and less about benefits flowing from the parks and it starts becoming more and more that the protein value of the park Mm -hmm. becomes important to the communities for them to survive.
1: Yes.
0: So we're going to have to put a huge amount of effort into maintaining um, community support um, so that the the protein in the parks, which is effectively the prey base on which the predators uh, are dependent and the balance of the whole ecosystem which tourism and conservation needs is going to be threatened as uh, more and more people start facing starvation. And it's not about what's nice to have or what's good to have. It is literally about life or death and starvation. And Mm -hmm. the context there for me is really uh, most people in the developing world don't understand that when you have human-wildlife conflict and people kill lions that are killing their cattle, they're killing the lions because the lions are taking away their food. Their family will starve if they don't. Or they're trying to get the elephant out of the crops because the elephant is taking away their food. They will starve if they can't get rid of the elephant. Yes. And when you, when you put it in that context, it's a very different uh, engagement with the communities than it is of saying, ah, oh, these people don't care, they're just killing wildlife. That isn't the case in any rural community, anywhere. They don't go willy-nilly killing things because they know that they might need that thing to sustain them in the future. So they'll only take something out of the system if it's directly threatening them in the system or if it becomes a food source for them which they need to sustain themselves. So mm-hmm. that's the, the long-term black hole that we're facing if we don't keep up the really good work that's going on now of supporting the communities and making the parks stay relevant to the communities Um, as the lockdowns and as the tourism bans across the world start biting. We have to keep supporting those communities and keep them focused that when things fix, we need well-run, well-stocked parks to be able to create big economic activity for them in the area. They can see the future, and we need to try and keep them focused on what their future is going to be. And if we do, I think we're going to really win, because this thing will pass. It is uh, just a passing phase, and it it will change. When we come out of it, it will be different, but we're going to need really strong um, resources, really strong reserves, really strong relationships with the communities to be able to take um, our partnership in... Conservation to the next level, which is the communities, the wildlife and the land, care of the land, the wildlife and the people. That model, in my view, is going to be one of the biggest um, crutches that we're going to need to lean on as we climb out of this thing after COVID-19.
1: Thank you, Les. That's a very strong message, but also a very, very positive outlook um, going ahead as we all climb out of of the circumstances that we're in now and the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. Les, as usual, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and an eye-opener as well. Thank you for your time and good to hear from you again.
0: Thanks very much, Kat. Call me anytime.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Les.